You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In the early 80s, drought caused a famine that crippled the nation of Ethiopia. It was a bad scene. Half of the mortality rate is said to be attributable to human rights violations. People around the world were moved, like Irish singer-songwriter Bob Geldof, who wrote a fundraiser song. Who could he get to sing it? Well, how about everybody? The likes of Duran Duran, Spando Ballet, Boy George, Bono, and Sting joined forces as Band Aid to record the fastest-selling single in UK history, asking us the question, do they know it's Christmas? My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today we are talking about the worst Christmas songs. And don't blame me, this topic was voted on by the patrons at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Folks like Rita, Dana, Emication Likely, Vivia, Felix, Darlene, and Oil of Hope, which is just the most beautiful username I've seen in a while, who get to vote on episode topics in addition to getting bonus content and swag. So what makes a bad Christmas song bad? Of course, taste is subjective, and opinions by their nature cannot be wrong. But there are some songs I think most of us will agree we don't need to hear ever, 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 ever again. Some songs rub us the wrong way because they're sung by shrieking children on now-outdated equipment that was not kind to female and higher-pitched voices. Songs like I'm Getting Nuttin' for Christmas and All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth. Standards which I think would have died away if we weren't all made to sing them in elementary school. Some songs are painfully goofy, like Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, but you almost have to give them a pass since they accomplished what they set out to do. Some songs make us their enemy by burrowing into our brains and setting up shop for hours or days on end. The dreaded holiday earworm. Things like Jingle Bell Rock and Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, the mere mention of which can be enough to activate them like a sleeper cell of obnoxious holiday cheer. You might be able to forbid people in your own home from playing songs that irritate you, and I stress, might. But if you could find yourself with a bit of authority and a big enough bah humbug up your butt, you can try to make it so nobody has to hear that song anymore. For instance, the 1952 classic, I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, sung by 13-year-old Jimmy Boyd from Mississippi. Did you realize the song was about the little boy not realizing his dad was dressed as Santa? It had to be pointed out to me, and embarrassingly recently. People were scandalized by the musical marriage of sex and Christmas. 
with one churchgoer stating it was a mockery of decent family life as well as of Christ's birthday. Many pearls were clutched. They'd probably clutch them even harder if I were to go back and tell them, you know, Jesus wasn't actually born in the middle of winter, but that's another show. Boston's Catholic Archdiocese denounced the song, and the young Boyd had to meet with church leaders to explain to them that Mommy and Santa were properly, sanctily married. A West Virginia broadcasting company prohibited its radio stations from playing this insult to Santa Claus. And the same thing happened to one of my husband's favorite songs, Lou Monty's Dominic the Donkey. But the people of West Virginia went to bat for the little donkey who can take the Italian hills when they're too much for the reindeer. The public protested the ban so forcefully that it was repealed in less than two weeks. And this was in 1960, well before the age of social media, when 20% of U.S. homes didn't even have a landline phone. For every time my hubs plays Dominic the Donkey, I play The Pogue's Fairy Tale of New York at least twice, usually three times. A lot of folks don't like it, and I respect our difference of opinions, or they think it's the farthest thing from a cheery Christmas song, and I will agree with you there. The 1987 duet with singer Christy McCall who was the subject of a recent TikTok I put up at Moxie LaBouche, quickly became a UK holiday classic, famous then infamous in turn. It tells the story of a toxic couple who seem to deep down really love each other, but should probably not be allowed within 200 meters of one another. They hurl vile insults at each other, including a certain homophobic slur to rhyme with the word maggot. In December 2019, BBC radio DJ Alex Dyke said he was cutting the song from his program. The BBC had previously censored the song in 2007 with an unconvincing word swap, but this brought more backlash than the original version had. The BBC reversed course for a few years, but then put the censored version back up. What do you think about it? Should it be censored or taken down altogether? Let me know on social media, Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod. Some songs that we consider absolute standards today, impeccable and indispensable, made people in their day as prickly as holly and a lot less than jolly. The BBC worried that I'll Be Home for Christmas could damage British morale during World War II, so no airplay for you, Bing. In an amazingly blunt statement that would definitely trend on Twitter today, they said, We have recently adopted a policy of excluding sickly sentimentality, which, particularly when sung by certain vocalists, can become nauseating and not at all in keeping with what we feel to be the need of the public in this country. One of the most frequently covered and burlesque two Christmas songs, Santa Baby, wouldn't have become the classic it did if it had been sung by anyone other than the utterly incomparable Eartha Kitt. I mean, who doesn't love a Christmas song that's dripping in sexuality, sung by a loudly self-confident mixed-race woman? In 1953... A lot of people. 
radio stations refused to play it, and politicians gnashed their teeth after Kit performed Santa Baby at a dinner for the King and Queen of Greece that November. That was an unusual sentence, and I'm stalling for time to let you process it. However, Billboard magazine reported, Neither the king nor his queen were one whit disturbed by the Chantress's performance, nor by the song. Kit was quoted as saying it was inconceivable that anyone would question the ingenious poetry of the song. I don't know about poetry, but I do know I don't want to hear any version other than hers. If you look at an online listicle of worst Christmas songs, this next one is usually up near the top, if not in the number one spot. Now this one for me depends on the day. Some days it's so bad it's good, and some days, most days for a lot of people, it's just the regular kind of bad. Say what you will about it, you can't say Paul McCartney didn't put in the work. Wonderful Christmas Time features McCartney on guitar, bass, keyboards, drums, and vocals, even the creepy-sounding choir of children. Makes one wonder why he even kept a band around. You see the other members of Wings in the video, but the song was 100% McCartney. Like a number of holiday classics that you heard about in episode 92, The Jews Who Wrote Christmas, Wonderful Christmas Time was written on a boiling hot day in July and recorded during sessions for the McCartney 2 album. It apparently took the former Beatle a scant 10 minutes to write the song, a fact some of us find more readily believable than others. One of the most memorable elements of the song is the odd synthesizer sound that punctuates it throughout. That is, if you care to know, a Sequential Circuits Prophet 5, which was also used on hit songs like Betty Davis Eyes and What a Fool Believes. Though I suppose technically, it's still a Sequential Circuits Prophet 5, even if you don't care to know. Wonderful Christmas Time peaked at number 6 on the UK Singles Chart and has become one of the most widely played Christmas songs on the radio. Bonus fact, the Beatles only had one Christmas release. Christmas Time is Here Again, which was distributed to their fan club in 1967. I imagine that would fetch a pretty pence on the secondary market. Check an eBay. Oh, they're actually pretty cheap. If you don't like the song, you're not alone. McCartney himself isn't all that keen on it, but he has been playing it on UK tours in recent years. Gotta give the people what they want. And clearly, enough people want wonderful Christmas time. According to the Forbes website, McCartney earns over $400,000 in royalties from the song every year, though other sources claim that figure is probably the cumulative total. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. 
I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. My hatred for this next song cannot be overstated. I almost hired an editor just for this section. It's shrill, it's pointless, and it's been playing for 63 years. It's the God Chipmunk song, AKA Christmas Don't Be Late. See, I'm annoyed already. Named after the president, chief engineer, and founder of Liberty Records, the furry little cartoon rodents, Alvin and the Chipmunks, along with their human manager, David Seville, catapulted to superstardom. The Chipmunks, Alvin, Simon, Theodore, all wearing what looked like ill-fitted sweater dresses, were the brainchild of a songwriter named Ross Bagdasarian, best known by the pseudonym David Seville. Bagdasarian was the son of Armenian immigrants to California, who served in the Army Air Force in World War II, which was how he came to find himself stationed in Seville, Spain. He did a bit of acting, landing minor roles in movies like Rear Window and Stalag 17. Thankfully, songwriting played out a lot better for him. In 1951, he used the melody of an Armenian folk song to write Rosemary Clooney's hit, Come On to My House. Bagdasarian Come Seville began toying around with voice distortion effects, speeding up and slowing down his voice to achieve the cute, high-pitched sound of little animal voices. Consumer tape decks at the time had changeable speeds, but only in binary multiples. You could go to half or double. This created sounds that were an octave apart. For those without a musical vocabulary, this meant it either went way the heck up or way the heck down with nothing in between. Disney used half-speed recording for Chip and Dale, little cartoon chipmunks, making the extremely fast dialogue difficult to understand at times. As a result, dialogue recorded at that speed had to consist of very short, clear phrases. Seville's chief innovation was to use tape machines that could vary speeds in between the extremes, creating more understandable and thus more emotionally accessible voices that worked well for both spoken and singing parts. The Chipmunk song made its debut in Christmas 1958 and immediately became a smash hit, reaching number one on the Billboard Hot 100. It would be the band's first and only number one song, as well as Seville's second and final number one single. The first was the song Witch Doctor, which also featured that variable speed recording. And then the 
witch doctor, he told me what to do. He said that Well, I guess when you have a hammer, all your problems look like nails. A write-up in Life magazine in 1959 noted that Bagdasarian Seville was the first case in, quote, the annals of popular music that one man has served as writer, composer, publisher, conductor, and multiple vocalists of a hit record, thereby directing all possible revenues from the song back into his pocket. That'd be impressive enough, even if you didn't know that Seville couldn't read or write music. But now you do know that, so you should be quite impressed indeed. The Chipmunk song earned three Grammy Awards at the very first Grammys the following May. I'm going to say that again because I don't think you heard me. The Chipmunk song won three Grammys. Now, in fairness, one of them is for Best Children's Song. A few years later, the Chipmunks landed their own television show, but it didn't command the same success that the music did. After Seville died unexpectedly in 1972, his son and daughter-in-law took over the voices of the Chipmunks, but it would take nearly a decade for the Chipmunks to make it back to TV with their 1981 Christmas special, ingeniously named A Chipmunk Christmas. Like a holiday Jason Voorhees, the Chipmunk song re-entered the Billboard Hot 100 in 2007 after the CGI Alvin and the Chipmunks movie. As of December 25, 2011, Nielsen SoundScan estimated total sales of the digital track at 867,000 downloads, making it third on the list of all-time best-selling Christmas-slash-holiday digital singles. Number three was Christmas Eve Sarajevo from the Trans-Siberian Orchestra that I had the mixed blessing to see live. The performance was great, but the stage light effects swept over the audience like the whole time. It was like having a camera flash go off in your face several times a minute. The number one downloaded song is, to the surprise of no one who's had to walk through a store this time of year, Mariah Carey's 1994, All I Want for Christmas is You. And that's all the more attention she's getting from me. If you ever want a real shake-my-damn-head moment, Google Mariah Carey's requirements to appear on camera for interviews. The word diva doesn't begin to explain it. It's no wonder Sony was willing to pay $25 million to get out of the contract with her. As the years pass, tastes change, culture shifts. New things are created and old things fall away. We rarely ride around in one-horse open sleighs. I can't even remember the last time I was in a closed one-horse sleigh. And it seems really strange to us now that people might sit around at Christmas telling ghost stories. So maybe that's why I don't understand the little drummer boy. How is a drum solo an appropriate gift for a sleeping infant and the woman who just squoze him out in a cowshed? And the ox and lamb kept time? That is literally the drummer's only job. Well, that and making the rest of the band's drinking problem look reasonable. Hey, what's the difference between a drummer and a drum machine? You only have to punch the info into the drum machine once. What do you call a drummer who broke up with his girlfriend? Homeless. Don't worry, drummers, this abuse isn't exclusive. What do you call the pretty girl on a bassist's arm? A tattoo. Oh, that's my five. Good night. How old do you think this slow, plodding song is? 
I couldn't have put a year to my guess, but for some reason it surprised me that it was written in 1941. I don't know if I thought it was a lot older or somewhat newer. The composer was an educator and songwriter named Catherine Kennicott Davis. Originally titled Carol of the Drum, does what it says on the tin, it was based on an unidentified Czech Christmas carol and intended for choirs. One group of singers took a liking to it and propelled it to success in 1951, the Trap Family Singers. As boring as this song is, and truly, truly it is, it does provide me the opportunity to draw a straight line between the Von Trapp family and the lad insane David Bowie. In 1977, Bowie was, quote, actively trying to normalize his career. Debilitating drug addiction and accusations of Nazi sympathizing threatened to sink his earning potential, so it was a no-brainer for him to appear on Bing Crosby's Merry Old Christmas. For the benefit of several listeners, Bing Crosby was a crooner and a Golden Age Hollywood icon, so this seemed like the right means to the end, because, as Bowie later said, my mom likes him. The promise by producers to run the video for Bowie's single Heroes, fitting as poorly as it would in the middle of a Christmas special, probably didn't hurt things either. The special starred Crosby, his actual family, and stars of the day like the model Twiggy, who my mother has still not forgiven for coming along and making curvy, busty figures unpopular. So, Bing Crosby and David Bowie. On paper, it made no sense. But in filming, it made even less sense, if that were possible. A negative amount of sense. I mean, just look at this juxtaposition. You can see the two of them together on the Vodacast app. It's a podcast listening app that lets creators add supplemental information. So when I'm talking about a thing, you can open up your app and see the thing. It's still early days for them, and I'm still learning how to use it, but I really recommend you check out Vodacast, available on both Android and Apple, V-O-D-A-C-A-S-T. So Bowie arrived in a full-length mink coat, earring, and bright red lipstick to appear alongside Bing Crosby. Bowie agreed to the producer's demands to tone his look down, but asked slash begged slash demanded the producers let him sing anything else, telling them in no uncertain terms how he hated the song. Ian Frazier, who co-wrote the piece Bowie would sing, Peace on Earth, told the Washington Post in 2006, We didn't know quite what to do. Instead of panicking, he and two other men working on the special, Buzz Cohen and Larry Grossman, hunkered down at a piano in the studio basement and spent an hour and a quarter coming up with the song. Consummate professionals, Bowie and Crosby, perfected the new song in less than an hour. It was that professionalism that actually kind of brought the two men together. According to Crosby's daughter Mary, who was 18 at the time and a big Bowie fan, eventually, Dad realized David was this amazing musician, and David realized Dad was an amazing musician. 
You can see them both collectively relax, and then the magic was made. Bonus fact, Mary went on to become an actress, starring in the hit TV show Dallas, but she isn't the only thespian that Crosby's legacy produced. Bing's granddaughter, Denise, will always have a place in my heart as Tasha Yar, first chief of security on the Enterprise D. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, well, then maybe you're not cool enough to sit at our table. So there. The special was recorded in mid-September, but Crosby wouldn't see it released. He died of a massive heart attack after a day of golfing in mid-October, meaning the special was aired posthumously at the end of November in the U.S. and on Christmas Eve in England. Bizarrely, this single proved to be one of Bowie's fastest-selling singles, selling over a quarter million copies in the first month and being certified silver by the British phonographic industry one month after its release. And what does it say about me that I had to do a second take on that because I read it as British pornographic industry? They certify very different records. One thing that helped propel the success was the fledgling Music Television Network, which in its original primitive state actually played these things called music videos. When it launched in 1981, there weren't really enough videos to fill up an entire channel, so they played what they had, including Peace on Earth slash Little Drummer Boy, a lot. This prompted RCA to issue an official release in 1982 as the arbitrary B-side single for Fantastic Voyage from the Lodger album. This annoyed Bowie to the point of accelerating his departure from the label. Still, it was the highest-charting single for Bowie in the post-Scary Monsters era, at least until Let's Dance came out three months later. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. So the question was, do they know it's Christmas? Since Ethiopia is two-thirds Christian, yes. I'd go out on a limb and say that probably the one-third that's Muslim knows, too. But the important thing is that 100% of the royalties from the song go to the cause, and that figure currently sits north of $250 million. Among the luminary names involved was a pre-beard George Michaels. This was in his Wham! days when he also recorded the song you're hearing now. Recognize it? To everyone who just lost Whamageddon, <laughs> Oh, wait, you serious? Let me laugh even harder. <laughs> totally worth it. I'm just passing it on after Red from Overly Sarcastic took me out last year during one of their videos. For everyone else, just ask the nearest Gen Xer. Remember, you can always find the source links and the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Happy holidays and stay safe. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.